0: We need to start off by addressing something very difficult. Uh, This week, again, in our nation, tragedy has struck. This week, again, a shooter walked into a campus and opened fire. This week, again, nine people have lost their lives due to the evil actions and decisions of an individual. And this week, again, we are left to ask the questions, what is wrong? What is wrong with this world? What is going on? Why do these things keep happening? And it is interesting to see the media asking that question and the experts coming up with many different answers, many of which, quite frankly, I'm not smart enough to evaluate. But they're missing something wrong. Because clearly something is wrong with the world. And I believe we can work on laws and that might be helpful. I can believe we can work on the the prison uh, system. I believe we can work on the mental health system. I believe we can work on these things. And those all might be very helpful, but I believe beyond any shadow of a doubt, they will never, ever fix this problem in the world. You see, the Christian answer, the biblical answer, some might even call it the Sunday school answer, to the question of what is wrong with the world is one word, sin. We don't like to hear that word. But today we're going to be confronted with the sin that is in the world. And by so doing, we're going to also be confronted with the sin that is in our own lives. And I know if you're here today and you're struggling with things in your life, you have doubts, you have concerns, you're you're working hard to overcome some issue or make it through some difficulty, this is not what you want to hear when you walk in. But let me emphasize what I said earlier. By understanding the depths of sin, and even, yes, our own sin, we will better understand the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. So stick with me, and whatever you're going through will be seen clearer if we can understand these important truths from Scripture. I'm not saying it makes it all go away or makes it all okay. Just put on your Christian happy face. I don't believe in that. Sometimes we have to weep and struggle through things, but we have to weep and struggle as those who have hope. So open up to Genesis chapter 3. I've called today's sermon, How to Dethrone God. And it's an interesting concept. Literally, as we look at this, we're going to be looking at a how-to, a couple steps. How do you kick God off his rightful throne? Now maybe, hopefully, you're not coming today saying, yes, that's the very question I wanted answered. This is great, now I'm going to learn. But I hope as we walk through this text and we see what Adam and Eve were doing in the original sin, we'll also see it in our own lives and say, whoa, I do the same thing. I need to think about this. I need to consider this because I do the same thing. Now, the number one thing I want you to hear, and if you fall asleep for the rest of this, that's okay, but it's not okay. Don't do that. But hear this. Under the concept of how to dethrone God, the number one thing we all need to understand is it will not work. You can't dethrone God. At the end of Scripture, toward the end of Scripture... Revelation is the the account of the end times, the summing up of all things, God bringing his plan to perfect fulfillment, the end of history, the beginning of eternity, and God's holy kingdom. And Revelation 19, 6 through 7 states this. And think about this in our sinful world with everything going on. Think about this in relationship to what we're about to study. Adam and Eve falling into sin. Thinking about all of that continuing, getting worse and worse and worse. And yet this is what Revelation says at the end. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. We're going to look at this idea of how to dethrone God, how to kick Him off His throne. But you need to understand, no matter how much you've tried to do that in your own life, wittingly or unwittingly, you have not succeeded. God is on His throne. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. We can't do it. All of the world can't do it. So I want us to start there. But we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. I misspoke last week. I said we were doing Genesis 3 and 4. Uh, That's not true. We're just looking at the first seven verses because we need to understand what's going on here in the original sin. And then next week, we'll look at the rest of chapter 3 as we look at the consequences and the effects that we still feel today. We're going to look at how to attempt to dethrone God. What does that look like? to act in such a way, live in such a way, make a decision in such a way to seek to kick God off his throne. So we can understand the sin that is at work in our own lives, the sin that is at work in our world, and then we can understand the incredible nature of the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. So open up to Genesis chapter 3 if you haven't done so. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And if you really don't have a Bible, take ours. It's not a sin. You can steal it. It's okay. Take it, take it home, read it. We would love to get God's word in your hands. Uh, We can get more. Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. Let me just read it to put it before us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the first thing I want to look at is just those first three verses. Because step one in how to dethrone God is to shift the focus, to take our focus off of God. And I want you to see how this is happening with Eve and even with Adam in this passage, how their focus is taken off of God. Because it's a subtle shift in our own lives even. Without us even realizing it, we lose focus of God who created us. Now think about the context here. There's a danger in doing sermons like this where you break it up and you cover a couple of verses each Sunday because you lose a bit of the context If I was to stand up here and read to you the first several chapters of Genesis, I won't for time's sake, but if I was, you would have heard over and over in Genesis chapter 1, God said, and then things were created. God said, it came into being. God said, it came into being. You would have heard over and over again, it was good, it was good. God made all these good things. God made a good earth. He put an amazing garden in it. That's where he put Adam and Eve, where everything they could ever possibly want or need was taken care of, and they had a perfect relationship with God. This overabundance of goodness is evident in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. Watch how the focus shifts to other things. And first, we're introduced to this serpent. We come into a text like this and we want to say, well, who is the serpent? What's the theological background of the serpent? Why is Eve talking to a serpent or a snake? Did the serpent have feet? Did it not? We have all these questions. Interesting questions, valid questions, not what the text is trying to answer. So my goal, usually, when I try to come to a text, I want to know what questions the text is raising and what questions the text is answering. So start there. Other things may be valid. And we'll look at the identity of the serpent in a second. But let's look at what the text is emphasizing. Because the goal of this passage, all the way from chapter 2, verse 4, through, what was it, the end of chapter 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. We talked about this last time. That phrase, this is the account of, is how did the heavens and the earth, how did creation get from where it was when God created it to where it is today? What happened? That's what this is trying to answer. And we learn right away, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. It's important when you come to Scripture to look for repeated things. And when we come to this and we see this, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, that should cause us to wake up and say, hey, that phrase is familiar. We've heard that before in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, it identifies the serpent as one of the creatures, one of the animals on the earth. And you're going, well, duh, of course it does. That's pretty obvious, Dave. Thanks. Let's move on. Look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the what? wild animals or creatures. Over all the creatures that move along the ground. Look down at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we have a creature coming to Eve and Adam's right there with her. We'll see that in a second. Coming to them and saying something. Now we want to know, well, wait a minute. Did they ever speak before? I mean, where did this creature get the ability to talk? Was that weird for them? Again, that's not the point of the text. But what it is emphasizing is here is a creature, something that Adam and Eve had authority over, God-given authority over, They were to rule over the creatures, and the creature is coming to Eve and saying, hey, I've got something to tell you. And at that point, Adam and Eve should have both said, no, that's not how this works. You don't tell us things. We rule over you. This is an inversion of God's created purposes. That's what's going on, and this is emphasized over and over again in the text. We are told that the serpent is crafty. Other translations, you may have cunning or shrewd. Occasionally, this word is even used positively in Proverbs, uh, I think it's 16, 16. All who are prudent, there's that word, sounds a lot better to say prudent. All who are prudent act with knowledge, but fools expose their folly. This word means somebody who knows something that somebody else may not know and is able to apply it to the situation. Now, it can be either bad or good. If the person is setting a trap, I know where you're going to be and I know how I can get you. Well, I'm being crafty, I'm being cunning, this is a negative thing, I'm trying to ensnare you. If it's somebody living wisely, I know there is a God who's in control of the universe and I'm going to live accordingly, that's prudence. You see the difference there? But they're both based on this idea of knowing something. And this, again, comes up in the text. So what we have here is a creature, an animal, who knows something and is talking to Adam and Eve. And right away, big red flashing lights should have been going off for Adam and Eve. They had the authority. They were the stewards over creation. They didn't take orders from the creatures. They were God's people to steward creation. This is like... Us giving our child to a babysitter, our six-month-old baby, saying, please watch over my child while I'm gone, and the babysitter saying, yes, I will exercise proper loving authority over this child. And as soon as the door is closed, the baby looks up at the babysitter and says, okay, now I'm going to tell you how this is going to go. And at that moment, the babysitter should say, I love you, sweetie, but that's not how this works. I'm in charge here, and I love you, and I'm going to do what I know is best. This conversation should have been stopped right here. But their focus had been shifted off of God and his plan and his purposes. Now we do know from elsewhere in Scripture this is Satan. This is the devil. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. This topic, this idea of Satan appearing as a serpent, it comes up again and again. We know some things about the devil. 1 Peter 5:8 calls the devil our enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus says of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding on to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who is speaking to Adam and Eve. This is who is going to call into question who God is and his good and perfect will. This is who they are listening to. There's another important fact, and I really wrestled with this one because I know some people are going to like this. But again, I see a pattern in this text of God's creative order being undone. I see it again at the rest of the chapter when we come to the curse. There's a clear indication of God restoring his creative pattern. But there's an important fact right here. Not only is the serpent, who is a wild animal speaking, it says right away, he said to the woman. The serpent doesn't talk to Adam. If you look down in verse 6, it says she takes the fruit, she eats it. She also gives some to her husband who was with her. Now, there's a lot of discussion about that. He's, some people say, well, he's somewhere else in the garden. Maybe and she does this thing, and then she goes and finds him. I don't think that's what's going on here. I believe, based on the evidence and the emphasis here in this created order, he's right there allowing all this to go on and says nothing. That was Adam's failure. He didn't step up and take his God-given role to say, wait a minute, you shouldn't be speaking to my wife. This is not her decision to make. The serpent undermines God's created order, and even Adam undermined God's created order by allowing this to go on. Eve speaks on behalf of humanity. It was a role that was not hers to take. It was Adam's role. We know it was Adam's role because Scripture clearly holds Adam responsible for this sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It's interesting to see those passages and say, well, Adam's really being held accountable for this sin. Then you go back to Genesis 3 and you go, yeah, but he was kind of just hanging out. It wasn't really his fault. It was his fault. He let it go on. And he is held responsible for it. Scripture clearly teaches, please hear this. This is an aside, but I need to say it. Scripture, I believe, clearly teaches equality between men and women. We stand equally as sinners before God. God doesn't look down at us and say, women, you are worse because of what Eve did in the garden. You don't see that in Scripture. Men, you don't get to stand before God and say, well, at least I'm not a woman because I didn't do what she did. No, you're a sinner. We are all equally sinners condemned to death. In Christ, we can all equally be righteous and given the gift of life. God doesn't look at women Christian and say, well, yeah, but you're still a woman. It's not the way it works. You're saved. We are equally righteous just as we were equally sinful. But this passage is not blaming Eve for original sin. Okay, And I think that's important to understand. Scripture in general, there's a few places we could look at, but in general, the blame is not put on Eve. But there is a clear emphasis making an important point that God's created order was undone. They weren't keeping their focus on God and his purpose in the way he had created things. They were allowing it all to be undermined. And speaking of Eve, or speaking to Eve, and in Eve speaking on behalf of humanity to the serpent, God's order of creation was being ignored. Adam, who was there, And Eve allowed Satan to shift their focus away from God's plan and order in creation. This is a bad start right here in the first couple verses, but let's look at where it goes. The focus is shifted away from what God had clearly said. I said in Genesis 1 and 2, over and over again, there's, and God said, and something amazing happens, and God said, and something beautiful happens, and God said, and reality itself comes into existence as being dependent upon the very words spoken to God. It's this huge, beautiful theme through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say? And that is like a sledgehammer coming down in the middle of this text. And we should stop at that moment, and Adam and Eve should have stopped at that moment and said, are you kidding me? You're going to question what God said? Serpent, you whose very existence comes from the fact that God did say? Adam and Eve, whose very existence and place and creation is what it is because God said? the goodness that was abundant around them because God had said, now they're going to look at God and say, well, did you really say it? And did you really say it this way? Who do they think they are? And then we have to ask ourselves, who do we think we are? When we continue to do this over and over again, The focus has shifted from God having the authority to speak and them obeying to them now saying, wait a minute, let's question what God has said. The focus has shifted away from God's abundant goodness. The serpent's question, you must not, or did God really say you must not eat from any tree, calls into doubt that God wants anything good for them at all. It's like a question saying, God doesn't really want anything good for you. He's holding everything good back. Isn't that really what God is doing? And the doubt has been planted. And you're going to see that take effect. Isn't it interesting, as we look at our world today, how that doubt right there comes up again and again and again? How so many people want to say, I see this and it's good and God says not to have it. Oh, God's holding something good back. Not at all. Eve's response shows that this is working. She leaves out some things. She has some good responses, but look at what she leaves out. She says, we may eat from the trees in the garden. God had said, if you look back at Genesis 2, verse 16, you are free to eat, or you may freely eat. There's an abundance there. There's an emphasis. Have at it. This beautiful, wonderful stuff, go for it. And she leaves that out. And you say, oh, you're kind of splitting hairs. Believe me, in this text, words are very, very important. She leaves out something else. God had said, you must not, verse 17 of chapter 2, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will what? Certainly or surely die. And what does she say? We must not eat it. We must not touch it or you will die. Again, a little word. That certainty has been removed. And you're going to see Satan pick up on that in the next verse. She also adds something. She says we must not touch it. Now, some say, here we have the beginning of legalism. She's she's putting something on what God has said, and that's really bad. It's ironic that others say, well, yeah, but she's trying to stay away from it. Isn't that good? I mean, really, do you want to touch something that you shouldn't eat? Shouldn't you just stay away from it as far as possible? This is something good. I don't know which one of those is right. But here's what I see. She should be talking about God, whether he is good and right or not. And really, at that moment, she shouldn't even be talking about it. She should say, I know God is good. Instead, she's looking at the fruit. And she's saying, don't touch it. I'm I'm not supposed to get close to it. Stay away. Do you see the shift in focus? The focus has been taken off of God. We often teach sin as something that is bad, and that's good, right? It's true, sin is bad. But I've seen so many youth and so many adults that are taught, God says this is bad, and it's bad because it will hurt you, it will harm you, it will destroy your life. And we go on and on and on about why God is right, and all the proofs for why God is right, and why you shouldn't do this, this, and this, and this. And then one day the youth grow up, Or one day the adults start getting their own idea and they say, wait a minute, it's not that bad. And instead of teaching them to look at God and his abundant goodness and his authority, we've taught our youth and we've taught ourselves to look at the thing and sit in judgment on it. Well, guess what? One day our ability to judge will change. And we've already put ourselves in the driver's seat. And this is what happens to Eve Instead of trusting God and keeping the focus there, she looks at the thing and makes a judgment on it. Whether or not she should touch it or whether or not it's good for her is the wrong question. It's the wrong focus. The focus must be on God. Satan has them right where he wants them. And so we come to step through two. If step one is how to dethrone God, the step one is to shift the focus off of God, step two is to begin to believe the lies. Look at verses four through six. Satan starts out with the biggest lie ever. You will not certainly die. This is an outright contradiction of what God has said. And the truth is, all sin... Is an outright contradiction of what God has said. It is not a bending of the rules. It is not a breaking of the rules. It is God said it, I disagree, therefore I'm going to do it. That's what sin is. All sin puts us in the place of saying God is wrong. I've never felt this more clearly until I became a parent. Because growing up, I used to think, well, mom said not to do this and I did it. Really, what's the big deal? And I was looking at the thing, the rule that I broke, the consequences of that rule. That was how I judged everything. Now that I'm a parent and I tell my child, don't do this. Please don't put the toilet paper on that way. Put it on the other way. And the kid says, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal in that particular instance. But when they choose to turn it around, what are they saying to me? I know better. That's the big deal. I don't really care which way the toilet paper's on. But what I care is that my kids trust me and that they obey me because I'm their parent. And in that moment, I'm not thinking about the toilet paper. I'm thinking about the fact that my child has chosen to actively rebel against me as a parent. I know, kids, you're thinking, come on, that's really overstating it. Parents, is it overstating it? Isn't that how you feel? Now, imagine you're God and you really do know everything because, kids, we don't. don't say anything but you're God and you really do know everything. And Adam and Eve are making a choice, saying, nope, I want to do it my way. Sin is more than just breaking a rule. It is overthrowing the rule maker. That's what sin is. It's a rebellion against the one who made the rule. There's another lie that they're believing. One is that God is just flat out wrong. The other is that God is holding back something good. Satan says there's something good about the fruit, that God is holding back from them. He says, you must not, or I'm sorry, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's interesting. Did you know Satan has a track record of promising us what God has already given us? Did you know that? Because really, Satan can't tempt us with anything other than what God has already made. Satan can't make anything. So he has to take something God has made and twist it. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 in the New Testament. There's a very similar setting. Only this time, instead of Satan speaking to Eve, Satan is speaking to Jesus, the Son of God. And he is testing him. He is tempting him. And there are three different temptations. We're not going to look at each one. But in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, it's the last one. Again, the devil took him to, this is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Think for a second. Who is Jesus? He's the son of the living God. Is there anything that happens on this earth that is not under his authority? Is there anything on the face of the earth that does not belong to him? Satan is saying, Jesus, oh man, you follow me and I'll give you all this stuff that's already yours. How dumb is that? That's like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, if you give me $10, I'll give you your car. And you go, I already have my car. Why do I need to give you $10 so I can have my car? It's mine. It's mine. Satan is promising Jesus what Jesus already has. And Jesus' response is so good. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, He goes right back to the word of God, worship the Lord God and serve him only. Do you see that laser focus on who God is? Look at how Adam and Eve deal with this. Look back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Because the, the thing that Satan is offering them is to be like God. God is holding something back. He wants you to be worse than Him, and He's oppressing you. That's what Satan's saying. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We come back to this so much. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, and He goes on to everything else in creation. Did you see it there? Again, throughout the pattern of Genesis, God had said, let's make fish like fish. Let's make dogs like dogs. Let's make bears like mares. And then he gets to Adam and Eve and he says, I'm going to make them like me. What is Satan offering them? To be like God? They were made to be like God. God. We are more like God than anything else in all of creation. That doesn't mean we're divine. It doesn't mean we're perfectly holy. It means that we can relate to God in a way that nothing else can. Satan was trying to sell them what they already had. But to get it in a different way, that's the lie of sin. But there's one more lie. Look at verse three or chapter 3, verse 6 at the beginning. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, And pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And just stop there. How many times in verse 6 is God mentioned? Zero. Here they are discussing what God has said. Here's Eve making a decision based on what she should do, and not once is God even considered. She's completely lost the focus, she has completely accepted the lies. And there's this last lie that she is accepting, and that is that we are a better judge than God. That's the lie of sin. And we hear it repeated over and over and over in our world. And you and I do it every single day. I want this because it makes me feel good. I want this because it'll be good. I want this because it'll lead to something good. And that thing that's something good, oh, God will like that, even if he says not to do this. And we put ourselves in the place of God. We've kicked him off the throne. We've sat down and said, God, I can do this job better than you. That's what Eve is doing. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were what? Pleasing to the eye and good for food. Some people look at this passage, and it's an interesting study, and they say we see three aspects of sin. It's it's physical, this, this food, it's emotional, pleasing to the eye, it's mental, desirable for gaining wisdom. And those are interesting concepts. But again, we have to look at what's repeated. What's repeated is God had put them in a garden where they were supposed to look around and go, wow, look at that fruit. That's amazing. God has given that to me. I get to go eat that anytime I want. This is phenomenal. That's where they lived every single day, waking up. What food do I want? <gasps> I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. And they could eat to their heart's content. Was God holding anything good back from them? No. He had showered it upon them abundantly, more than they could ever possibly want or imagine. It was theirs. But one thing is added here. Two things God had given them. She says it was good for food, which is how God made it, And pleasing to the eye, which is how God made it, but she adds one more. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. There's the lie. You see, in Scripture, wisdom and a relationship with God are intimately tied together. Proverbs says over and over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom which means fear of the Lord is keeping God in His proper place, understanding He is God and you are not. That's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts there and flows out of it. When you get that wrong, there is no wisdom. There is only the foolishness of thinking we are God and He is not. And so they've added to it. Adam and Eve want their own wisdom, the ability to judge the world, to determine right and wrong, and to take the very place of God. This is a choice to kick God off of his throne and put themselves in his place, which leads us to the action of the sin and the consequences. Look at the end of verse 6. Because it's interesting that the text so far in verses 1 through 6 at the beginning have been totally consumed with the choice, this discussion, why should we do this, thinking about it, should we do this, God said not to, but we're going to. The pacing is very informative here. Because now they've made up their mind and watch how quickly it happens. The end of verse 6, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Boom, 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 boom. You see, we like to think that when we're up against sin, we're going to make a good decision. But when we've already kicked God off the throne and we've already questioned what He said, the decision is going to happen. The decision comes from our relationship with God. We can't think all of a sudden in that moment after we've put ourselves in God's place and put ourselves as the judge that all of a sudden we're going to make a good decision. That's not the way it happens. I believe the decision to fall into sin had happened in the first six verses. At the end of verse six, it's just the outcome of it. It's the natural expression of what they had already decided. And again, the order of creation is emphasized. Eve gives some to Adam who was with her. Eve gave the creature authority over her, and Adam gives Eve authority over him. This is an absolute destruction of God's purposes. And their eyes were opened. This is what they wanted. Finally, we're going to get this wisdom that God is holding back. We're going to know these things that God didn't want us to know, and they're going to be so amazing. And what's the first thing they know? They're naked. Their first experience of their own wisdom is absolute shame. And the first action under this newfound wisdom is to try to cover it up. You see, God made us in a world where all the responsibility of the world is on His shoulders. All the care of creation is on His shoulders. All the burden of deciding right and wrong are on His shoulders. It's His job. He's very, very good at it. Adam and Eve kicked Him off the throne and said, nope, we've got that. And now here we see them bearing the brunt of the responsibility on themselves. And it is crushing. They can't fix it. How did this newfound wisdom work out for them? Romans 1, 21 and 22 says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. They wanted wisdom, and instead their thinking just went in the garbage. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you want to know what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton had a great response to this. A newspaper published a, an invitation for people to write articles and said, "Please answer in so and so number of words. What's wrong with the world?" G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter back, "Dear sirs, in, re- in regards to your essay writing, what's wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton." What's wrong with the world is us. We sit on our own thrones of our own lives. And each and every person does it. It's the world that we live in. We'll see next week as we look at being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It's the world we're born into now. A world that is in active rebellion. But it's not just a world problem. It's an us problem. We live sitting on that throne. So how can we change? Well, these steps... When inverted, give us a lot of good things to remember. Stay focused. Keep your focus on God. As you live in a world that's seeking to distract you from who God is and what He's doing, stay focused on Him. His authority, His word, His plan. Cling to the truth. That's how you chase out lies. It's interesting that in the the context of the giving of Genesis, i brought this up many times, and it's really helped me to understand or at least get a better appreciation of some things in Genesis. Genesis was first given to the Israelites as they're going from uh, Egypt and enslavement into the Promised Land. They're walking through the desert, and all these horrible things are going on, and they have to trust God over and over and over again. And right here, they're given an example. Look at what happens when you don't trust God's Word. And there's a clear indication for them. If you're going to be in the Promised Land, if you're going to follow God, you must trust His Word, Christians. Christians. It's not our job to sit in judgment on God's word and decide if we like it or not or whether or not it's applicable to us today. That's God's job. We are to sit under its authority. Say, you are God and I am not and this is your word and it is true and I will live it and I will trust it. We must understand that the actions have consequences. We can't just say, I'm okay and you're okay. Let's just feel better about ourselves. That's not good enough. And that message, unfortunately, is being preached in church after church after church around the world. It is an offering of salvation with no recognition of sin. And there is no salvation without a recognition that we are sinners and in need of it. It's interesting. Because the sin here in the garden starts with this phrase, she took some and ate it. That phrase, take and eat, will become important once again in Scripture. In Matthew 26, 26 through 28, Jesus was sharing a meal with his apostles the night before he is arrested. And he says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Humanity sought to dethrone God by taking and eating something that was not theirs to take. God restored us by giving something we could never do ourselves. He gave his Son in our place. Christ reclaims God's throne by clearly giving that which we do not deserve.